I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. On today's podcast, author Alex Hammond joins me to discuss his wonderful new novel, The Paris Collaborator. My name is Justin Hamilton, and you're listening to Big Squid. Thanks for joining me today as I speak to a good friend of mine, Alex Hammond, about his new book, The Paris Collaborator. I haven't been reading as much as I did during the last lockdown. Like last one, I churned through novels, but this one, I don't know, things have been a little bit different, a little bit stranger. I've kind of still been working on things. Uh, one project in particular, I will tell you about at the end of this podcast, but I got a copy of the Paris Collaborator sent to me, and it was just so good. I was very happy to let everything else in my life slide while I turned through Alex's latest page turner. You know, when you're at that point where you're like, ah, there's some stuff I've got to do, but uh, you know what, I'll just read three more pages, 10 more pages, 15 more pages. Oh, I'll just do that other thing tomorrow. That's the best compliment you can give a novel, really, isn't it? Uh, I've actually been reading uh, some other stuff as well, some short stories by John Kinsella in his book, Old Growth. Uh, It's great little fascinating vignettes into the lives of everyday men, women and children in Australia. His short stories just kind of drop you in at these pivotal moments for these characters and you see the decisions they make or don't make, how it impacts their lives and then move on. And it's it's lovely stuff. And funnily enough, I also have uh, three graphic novels that I'm going to read. I've got volume three of Something is Killing the Children, volume four in the November series entitled The Mess We're In. And then there's the new reckless graphic novel by Ed Brubaker and Sean Phillips, Friend of the Devil. I re- Maybe maybe I'll do a 
a graphic novel episode of the podcast and cover them all. I don't think I've talked about the November uh, graphic novels before either, so they're really interesting. They're great, actually. Uh, Matt Fraction is the writer on that, and the artist is uh, Elsa Charitiara, Matt Hollingsworth, and Kurt and Kenny. Elsa Charitiara? God, I should always rehearse or look up names before I decide to read them. It's always funny, isn't it? Because you you read things and you have it in your head and then you have to say it out loud for the first time and you're like, no, no idea. No idea. But anyway, the November graphic novels are fantastic. Um, Let's get into Alex's work, though. His first two novels, Blood Witness and The Unbroken Line, uh, followed the life of Melbourne defence lawyer Will Harris and the violent underbelly that exists just below the world the rest of us live in. And I was a fan of his first two books. I thought they were great. But I think Alex has outdone himself with his new novel, The Paris Collaborator. It is set in August of 1944, where former schoolteacher August Duchesne has found a way to survive living in German-occupied France. Essentially, he's an expert in finding missing people. And when he's approached by members of the French resistance to locate a missing priest and a cache of stolen weapons, Duchesne initially refuses. But the resistance won't take no for an answer. And then to make matters worse, Duchesne is also blackmailed by a powerful Nazi into searching for a German soldier who is suspected of deserting. To fail at either task will have deadly consequences for Duchesne and his daughter Marianne. So begins a frantic race against time as forces close in on Paris. Duchesne only has 48 hours to locate the missing priest and the missing soldier or lose the only person he loves. It is so good. It's so good. Um, I didn't ask if I could do this, but I'll just read a little bit from the opening page just to give you a a little bit of a taste the body hung from a tree a warm breeze made the dead man's hair dance in the dappled light his eyes and the soft flesh of his face had been eaten away the crows had been busy august de stood below the corpse around him a carpet of rotting fruit glistened under a clear sky and the sour fragrance mingled with the smell of rank flesh With one hand clasping his nose and the other shading his eyes from the sun, he stepped closer to the dead man. While his features were unrecognisable, the man's clothes, still damp from last night's rains, betrayed something of his identity. He was dressed in tan trousers and a cotton shirt, and a scarf was tied around his neck just below the rope. He wore only one boot, the other lay on the ground among the fallen fruit. At one time, there had been a knife in his belt, a tool for rural life, but only the sheath remained. The noose had been expertly tied, the knot that held it to the plum tree was strong. The farmer had been tied to the lowest branch, his feet would have thrashed the grass, just high enough to die, with no effort wasted. Whew. So good, right? I hope that gives you uh, a... cheeky little taste of the novel and if you would like to purchase it i will leave links at the big squid facebook page so it's easily done uh 
just so you know, in this chat, there aren't any spoilers, so you can have a listen and you don't have to worry that either of us is going to ruin the book for you. I've been really careful. Like, I would like you to read it, so I've been super careful. And you know what? If you've already read it, let me know what you think. I'd love to hear your takes on the book. I loved it. It was just what I needed to keep me company in lockdown. Maybe Alex could quickly turn out another one for me. <laughs> uh, Alex, if you're listening to this, please do not quickly turn out another one. That's fine. You can give me a call. <laughs> uh, he's a great guy, and uh, hopefully we'll get him back on to talk more about uh, the crime entertainment that he enjoys. But uh, anyway, I've been waffling. Uh, let's get into it. Let's bring in Alex Hammond now talking about his novel, The Paris Collaborator. So, Alex, they say you should never judge a book by its cover, but this is a great cover, and you should be very happy that this is the first thing anyone sees. Did you get to pick this, or is that something that's sent to you and it's a bit of a surprise and you're wrapped or it is whatever? Com- yeah, you're, thanks, Justin. It's a complete surprise. Yeah, they send it right. out to you, and the... Um, and you don't know what they're quite going to land on, and, and that is easily my favourite of the of the books I've had published. That is my absolute yeah. favourite. I think it's really captures the uh, people's. You know, if you pass it in a bookshop, the first thing you're going to do is pick it up, which is the goal, right? Right. So, yeah. yeah no, absolutely. It's really engaging. You know, and it tells us the location. The you know, it's Paris. It's the Second World War. There's you know. Yeah. Mm. It's it, the the colours are magnificent, and it does it captures the mood of the book uh, very much so and that's exactly what you want and I found the book fantastic I think this is your best one yeah and it's a real departure from your previous novels that were you know they're contemporary they were set in Melbourne and this one goes all the way back as you said to Paris it's uh, getting towards the end of World War Two. so I'm, I'm curious what inspired you to sort of change tact on what you wanted to write about so it was uh, Inglorious Bastards sort of <laughs> right. <laughs> in a way of speaking. Um, actually, what, what, what first happened was I received a letter from my um, aunt um, many years ago now, but I sort of rediscovered it. And it was um, in that was the original type description from my grandfather um, of his experience in the war. And he was a journalist writing for the Natal Mercury. And so he was sort of not quite a wartime correspondent because I don't really think they had those sort of roles then, but almost he was doing that, although he was serving and fighting. He he, um, right. he used to write back these sort of descriptions of their experiences in the war. And it was so um, sort of human um, because basically this, the, in the description he talks about how they go on a night patrol and they're absolutely terrified, you know, that the next thing they're going to discover behind the next hill in North Africa will be the Italians or the Germans. Yeah. Um, and so they have to make incredible, you know, be, be very quiet and move and just he builds this real sense of tension. And then... Um, they return having not encountered anybody and and after they sort of this grueling experience the report back is nothing to report and it's that right. sort of juxtaposition you know between the sort of bureaucracy and anyway so that experience reading it written in a very kind of you know um sort of from the perspective of, of somebody I knew but also thinking that these are just normal people you know you know and, and I didn't want to glorify a, a war setting and then I saw Inglorious Bastards, or Inglorious Bastards, or how we say that, say that. <laughs> and um, I thought, wow, this was really underutilised, this, um, this setting of occupied Paris. Um, yeah. 
And also, you know, as much as I like some of Tarantino's work, it is not a realistic portrayal. And it was this, you know, as you know, that film is a complete bizarre wish fulfillment situation. It couldn't be further from the realities of of, of the war and and, uh, and of occupied Paris. So I, um, I sort of then I write crime. So I was thinking about a character that might have a reason to investigate things in the setting of a of a, of of occupied Paris and and that's sort of where those seeds sort of germinated and bubbled up and ended up with this this setting yeah this is the sort of oh. culmination of factors yeah right oh I love that how bizarre to go off on this adventure where anything could happen and then and then nothing happens and it's almost like the opposite of the reasons we write where it's like nothing to report and that's a victory right yeah exactly yeah um yeah, and um, I think so. That, it, that's what I wanted to bring to this book was that sort of um, the small victories and the sort of human experience of a of a war without the sort of it being about fighting in a war, you know, and 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 then also this occupied Paris setting led to that kind of compromised idea about how does you know how does somebody get in a situation where they might be seen by some to be a collaborator, but others to be a not a collaborator and this idea of collaboration in that setting obviously you know it's just, it's pretty hard to avoid but it's such an interesting big moral question and i'd say that sort of ties my my, my books together are these sort of yeah moral conundrums within the context of a sort of crime thriller yeah 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 i hadn't actually thought of that but yeah your your last books you know your your main character was definitely in lots of difficult positions trying to work his way through uh in this uh august duchene is an interesting character where as he said he's 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 kind of viewed in many different ways there's people who really look to him because he does lots of good work there's both sides of the political equation who eye him suspiciously they don't really know if they can trust him but they know that he does a good job i felt like the opening chapter was almost the most important part of the story because it allows us to be on his side before we delve into the compromised uh, lifestyle it was it was that the intent of that or once again it's it's a it's a thrilling opening to this world oh thank you and you're 100 right you're spot on it is exactly because um he is going to end up working for both the resistance and the and the germans and so i wanted to show him doing something that we could see that he's actually a, a good guy in difficult situations you know he's 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 forced into this compromised situation it's not something of his choosing and so yeah we encounter him in the first chapter trying to find a missing child who's been sort of stolen away um by some people who've lost their child so it's already a bit grim but um yeah yeah it's it's and that's really yeah was to establish him draw people into his world first before we sort of then he gets drawn into this other you know um situation and gets the sort of pressure dialed up on him um and also i wanted to really tell show him doing things that were i guess Sort of human and heroic, but not have him fighting because he's fought in the First yeah. World War. He's he's yeah. tired of fighting, and he's trying to find a way to move, avoid and move beyond sort of being. He doesn't want to, you know. He he's tired of killing, so he's he's trying to move on. Um, and the other thing I think is important in that first chapter, which is was a sort of like a, a tip I got many years ago from a, a, a colleague uh, that I worked with, the Penguin, was um, his turtle. Um, because right. uh, he, he, you know, in that sort of, it's really in the second chapter. But he's gathering, you know, um, uh, 
uh, is it herbs or sorrel? I think he's or something. He's getting something right. to feed the feed the turtle that he is looking after. And and so and the advice that was given to me is what a character does when they're unobserved. Uh, says a lot to the readers about it so by giving him an animal to care for and it's a turtle it doesn't give you any perfection back but by giving him this sort of turtle as well and and that he's trying to feed a turtle in a time of um, scarcity and and keep this turtle alive sort of shows that you know he's he's kind to animals sort of thing so just it's just another level to layer in before he ends up you know being pressured by nazis to go work for them yeah, it's fascinating because he immediately, uh, and I think you get the balance perfect, he feels weary, but he also still feels like he has hope in his heart. He still feels like there is uh, a level of optimism that if, if I keep working in this direction, things will start to work out at some point. Yeah, I think that's a really, again, that's a really astute point. It's a sort of his, his mode of survival. I think, you know, when I, as a character, he... He is suffering kind of from, you know, what we would now, but they didn't know them, would be PTSD from his experiences in the First World War. So he has to hold yeah. on to something, an ideal, an idea to sort of get him through because that's the sort of fragility of, I guess, you know, people's mental health, but but specifically his. And, and, and in, a, in a high pressure situation where everybody's trying to survive in a in a wartime with the enemies, you know, occupied and on the streets and around you all the time. I mean, you know, that's, yeah, he has to hold fast to those ideals and those ideas of behaviour that, you know, will somehow lift him through, yeah. And it's funny the way the the French resistance and the and the Nazis kind of eye him suspiciously, but he's surrounded by compromised characters. Like everyone that he works with, everyone that he's friends with, is compromised in some way. It's a it's it, it, the, the whole town, the whole city is compromised. Except he, he seems to be the one that gets judged. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a really good point. I mean, I, I often say that the, the Paris collaborator of the of the book isn't just. Um, him. It's all the other characters that we're encountering throughout it. So we have, um, you know, the, even from people who's, who are working in the shops and selling. You know, are they provide, providing food to the Germans? Are they are they collaborating or are they making a living so they can provide food to their family, sort of thing? But all the way through, yeah, we've got black marketeers, we've got people who play um, for the German high command in their hotels. You know, play music and and yeah, I just really wanted to explore that idea. You know, compromise and and you know, the complexity of it. Yeah, yeah, it's... Uh, it, it, I, I sometimes find myself getting defensive of him. Uh, I'm, by the way, I'm trying to speak uh, obliquely because I don't want to give anything away for people who uh, read the book, but, yeah, there'd just be times where I'm like, fuck, this guy's doing his best, can you just back off? But <laughs> I, I think that means, you know, you've done a great job of uh, creating this character that you immediately, you know, are having those kinds of reactions when you <laughs> see him being treated this way. No, thanks for saying that. Yeah, I mean, I really like as a as a crime genre, sort of hard-boiled genre, and I always like to drip a little bit of element in that, and I think that's really about having this, at least in the, for the purpose of the story, of having that main protagonist feel like everything is set against them and everybody is against yeah. them and they're constantly being hassled. And, and um, yeah, it's, 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 you know, yeah. I mean, it's fun to write like that because it, it, yeah. it allows you to write from a real sort of underdog position. And, um, and, and yeah. There's uh, something that was uh, really surprising to me as well is that there are some real moments of horror in this book. Uh, the, the dread of being in the crypts is, you know, that's, uh, that's creepy, all that aspect of it. Uh, there's 
I'm going to speak really obscurely about this, but looking for a book in a certain place, which happens about three quarters of the way into the book, he needs to uh, he needs to find a little notebook where he has to go looking is full on. And yeah. I was wondering, is that a conscious decision before writing that you might have these horrific kind of elements in, or did that is that just something where the story took you in that direction and it just came up uh, naturally? I think that's a really interesting point, I, I, and I hadn't thought it. I really hadn't occurred to me, but I think it was unconscious in the writing of it from where one of the sources for the book was coming from. So um, I kind of like to push things a little bit cross genre when I'm writing, but also when I was thinking of this character, you know, um, August Duchenne, um, I chose his name and I was drawing on the sort of detective tradition and really harkening back to Edgar Allan Poe and his detective and he was credited with writing the first detective story which was C. Auguste Dupin Um, Dupin means of the pine and Duchenne means of the oak but those stories Murder in the Rue Morgue and they're actually kind of detective stories but Poe was a gothic horror writer so I wanted to build those elements plus also I was writing in Paris you know so it's hard not to want to put the catacombs in there because it's kind of creepy and cool and that's how we ended up there and then some of those that other aspect that you're very politely um, avoiding spoilers around I mean that's that's sort of a consequence of war so I guess you know I just thought let's up the ante and um, I think yeah you know as I I I didn't anticipate some of um, some of those decisions as I was writing and but but by choosing to set those things I think the interesting thing about crime writing is you're sort of problem solving on the go a lot of the time so um, you'll come up with the scenario and you think okay what what is this character how will they solve this problem and that that keeps the writing interesting so yeah it's yeah. so funny. So uh, I have to tell you just as a side note that when I was reading, I got two thirds of the way through that bit and I was like, whoa, this is full on. And I was really enjoying it. And it, it's so descriptive. And uh, it's one of those things where, you know, when you can smell a moment as well, like I always think that's amazing in a book when you're like, oh, I can really smell what's going on. But then I weirdly got taken out of it for a second and had to stop because you know like I'm good friends with your sister and I remember when your first novel came out and I was talking to her about it and she found the diving incident at the start really confronting because of you know she said you and your wife would go diving yes. and then you read she read that bit she's like oh my god you know I found that really <laughs> full on and then two thirds away through this bit I was like well I wonder how Claire's going reading <laughs> this aspect of it <laughs> Yes. Shocking, uh, your sister. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, I, it's, yeah, that is funny. Um, I don't really think... And then I put the book out there and then I suddenly realise, oh, shit, my family and my... You know, I'm going to read this <laughs> and I wonder what they think is going on. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's it's always tricky, you know. And also, you know, I've, I've dropped sex scenes in there because I'm, I, like, want, right. I don't want to just be like... American crime writers, they avoid them like the plague. Like, they'll have extreme violence and serial killers and all kinds of murder and then it's almost like that sort of puritanical aspect of American culture. They don't write about yeah. sex. And it just seems right. like an odd thing to sort of fade to black on the sex stuff, but then have brutal torture and murder as part of your book. <laughs> it seems to be uh, uh, not honest, you know. So, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. But my publishers actually got me to tone a lot of it down. So maybe that's a good thing because I, maybe I go in too hard with my uh, inclination towards the horrific and bloody and, yeah. 
Oh no, I think you. Uh, well, I, I think you thread the needle perfectly. It's a it's a thrilling moment, and it is one of those things where, as it's about to happen, you're like, oh no, <laughs> you know, it's like, oh, this is, oh, this is going to be full on. Um, I'm, you know, you just mentioned uh, before that uh, writing crime stories is a lot of problem solving. So, uh, I'm curious, how did you plan this book before you started? Did you have like a loose thread and and then built on top of it, or how how does uh, does that work? Yeah, I um I have to structure it. I think um, um so I sit down and actually work out the main beats of what I think will fall into each chapter, be that like a kind of character moment or a one of the threads for solving the mystery so like this clue will pop up here um, so I actually will break the sort of two mystery into two columns and then work out what the steps we need to take to solve them and then sort of feed them across and interleave almost like a kind of cut ups thing on a piece of paper you know yeah, but lay right. them down um, yeah. and then sometimes that'll spark ideas and the perfect, the perfect sweet spot is where you can solve some part of the plot but also have an important character moment but you know and 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 bring those merge those two two things elements together um but yeah but having once having that skeleton in place then i then a lot of that sort of it's improvised out from there so um but um i yeah i find it's absolutely critical and uh, for for me because i do like to put twists in i do want the reader to feel like it it pays off that with the the clues make sense and that they don't feel like blindsided a sort of you know it's hard not to take on board the criticism but um certainly for my first novel there was a sort of sense from some people that the reveal of who the um you know essentially the killer was right wasn't set up enough and throughout the course of the book so i really wanted to sort of lay the groundwork in a a way that paid off and and to do that i needed to really structure it yeah and do you and do you work out the beats as you're working out the characters or is it is it easier to kind of uh have like a a rough idea of what the story is work out your main character and then start adding the beats yeah it's sort of work out the characters um high level i'll sort of know what the dynamic between them is and the sort of you know i have a framework um and then i'll also have the beats but they'll only start to sort of really build as as i write so um as i sort of start to work out you know how they talk about this or yeah 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 interesting and were there any twists that you forgot to pay off like that happens a lot in crime novels doesn't it there's always one aspect of the story where you think what what did happen to that person but i feel like you covered everything didn't you well i'm i'm greatly advantaged in that i have um uh, work with some fantastic editors on this book and they they go through with such a fine tooth comb um yeah. so i didn't miss any i i um i you know and, and um you know, it's really structured around the twists, so I sort of really made sure I'd made them all pay off. But yeah, it's fascinating. The editorial process is always surprising to me. It's always slightly different. But this time around, we had a um, like there was a sort of whole analysis done around how much Duchenne, because it's again, is you know, this is it's war torn Paris, and um, they don't have access to food and things, and so there's a lot of barter and trade throughout the book. So there was an entire yeah. read through and analysis done by the editors and myself to make sure that we were tracking how much you know bottles of brandy he had versus how many right. packets of cigarettes he was using to trade for favor you know information and everything so that we didn't 
We didn't, so that all added up. There was a tally. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I hope you played Dungeons and Dragons as a kid because then uh, I feel like that would have helped you. Uh, it does, doesn't it? Plan it ahead, like keeping a track of how many arrows your elf has left. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Uh, were any of the characters a surprise to you? Did they take you in places that you weren't expecting, or did they reveal secrets that you didn't know they had to begin with? I think um, nothing major, but the thing that's sort of fun about it is that, that, that it's actually the su- stuff that is surprising, those smaller moments. So it's, yeah. it's their responses or lines of dialogue or a retort. Um, you know, it's more in that sort of stuff because, as, as I've described, I sort of know a bit about the characters and I know a bit about and I've plotted it out and structured it, but I don't know what they're going to say in any given scene and how they're going to speak to one another. And so sometimes I'm surprised by that. Yeah, just like, in, you know, if I, if I come up with a real zinger, you know, patting myself on the back and I feel like that's happening less often normally I'm, I'm, I'm having a lot of you know um, self-doubt about whether it is zingery enough um, right but yeah yeah um, that's the stuff that really where, where I get surprised is, is, is how they interact and what, what they're saying in the in the sort of more in the detail of the dialogue here yeah. Yeah, the, yeah, I can imagine, you know, you, you, you get on that bit of a roll, don't you? And then suddenly it's like, oh, this ter- person's turned out to be much funnier than I expected or, oh, this person's being a little bit more, you know, uh, they're being less uh, giving in the way that they express themselves and it's, it's fun to see that kind of come out on the page. Yeah, that's a really good way to describe it, yeah. I mean, it's almost like in um, you, you're sort of doing an internal improvised radio play in your own brain you know yeah. as, as you're going through yeah that's that's yeah. That's, that's for me that's what dialogue is like yeah and uh, it's interesting because about halfway through this book i felt like maybe you were setting us up for a uh, like a, a new series of novels and then i kind of got to the end and it was like oh well it also feels potentially definitive but there is uh, anyway i'm curious is there going to be a uh, more adventures in this area set after the war or would we see stuff uh, you know like a you know it's an awful word in many ways but a prequel to what it was like living deep inside because there's characters that you know we only get for a little while in the novel that would be interesting to see beforehand yeah I think I, I had um, so I kind of have to sit a, a delicate line with the first novel, right? Like, I wanted to write something that if it doesn't move on into a, um, a series, it has enough of an ending that it feels self-contained. But I did yeah. lay a little bit of groundwork for picking up what I, I would, where I would like to take it if I was to write a, a follow-up, which would sort of be partly set in Paris, but then he gets taken off to Germany because um, the war is, like, just immediately at the right at the end of the sort of... Um, um, yeah. You know, the, the, when Berlin is um, taken by the, by the Allies and by the Soviets, and this sort of tension... Like basically that the very early stages of the Cold War, so he he's sort of having to compete against an investigator from the uh, Soviet side to discover oh, somebody. Right. So it's like a race through Berlin just after, while there's still like pockets of um, you know SS resistance bursting out of cellars or whatever. So yeah, oh. that's, that's the idea. Wow. Yeah, that's great. All right. Yeah. I mean, I'm super excited by that. That sounds fantastic. Um, you, you said you were consuming uh, Inglorious Bastards. Uh, was there anything else that you were reading? Or you, you said there was a bit of Ed, uh, Alan Poe in uh, yeah. in the DNA here. Was there anything else that was exciting you? I'm just trying to think back because it was 2018 that I was doing the writing. So 2018, 2019. Um, right. Yeah. I think at that time I watched Little Drummer Girl, and I thought, I mean, I've got mixed feelings about um, 
yeah about uh, the, the book, but the, I thought the series the series was just remarkable because it had that sort of right. believable normal person cast into a dif- difficult situation, but also had a a conflict between two different points of view, and they sort of dragged between them. I don't know if you've seen it, but um, no, yeah, it's fantastic. I mean, yeah, for, that was where I was. Wow, I was like, wow, this Florence Pugh, she can act. Yeah, she's she's yeah, amazing. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, my um, my mum watched it actually. That's how I first. She was like saying, "This girl, she's such a phenomenal actor, and she's so young, but she has this incredible voice." And it was yeah. like, "Oh, okay." And then you hear her speak for the first time, you go, "Oh, right, yeah, yeah no, wow." She's, she's she's an amazing actor. Um, but also, I think I, I, a friend had put me onto Malcolm Gladwell's Revisionist History podcast around. Oh yeah, film. I love that too. Yeah, yeah, I love it, and and just but I think that sort of informed it. Because, you know, it's only reflecting on it now, but, but Gladwell's all about sort of exploring alternate versions and of, of history and looking at sort of in, in detail why people are motivated to do what they do and also sort of challenge the sort of stereotypical versions of history. I mean, obviously in the title it's called Revisionist History for a reason, so I think that was important. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, when, when I read when I'm writing, I, tr- I stay away from the genre because I'm worried I'm yeah. going to steal. So yeah. I, I'm... I think I was I've been super late to this but back then too I was reading Jennifer Egan um, she wrote uh, A Visit from the Goon Squad but also um, this book called uh, The Keep so I read those back to back and they were really really recommended to me so um yeah, I stay away. I try to stay away from the genre. Yeah, yeah, that's a good idea because you just never know what just suddenly turns up, or you know, you see it amongst um, my comedian friends where if you've been hanging out with someone for too long, you pick up on their mannerisms, or you suddenly yeah. find yourself saying a word the way they say it. Yeah. <laughs> so, I, yeah, yeah, I can imagine. That, I mean, do you find it hard to let go when you're watching a comedy show? Because I'm sure that analytical brain is going how they done this and you're sort of almost dissecting as you're going and not just rolling with it yeah so uh, years ago uh, my girlfriend at the time uh, we had a night off during the Adelaide Fringe and I think we saw like three shows in one night and uh, at the end I'd I'd said to her I had such a good time and she was like really you didn't laugh once and I realized (laughs) I'd been watching everything with that exact analytical brain of you know kind of appreciating rather than enjoying so this is how i enjoy stand-up comedy now i only pay three quarters attention and i let (laughs) i kind of let myself be distracted by things around me and then what that means is then when i come back to what i'm watching on stage things take me by surprise and i and i laugh yeah, I'll make that. That's a good. I'll, I'll try reading crime, paying only three quarters attention. See if I can yeah, it works. Yeah, like have have an album on in the background or something, or something else that just keeps grabbing your attention now and again. That's that's my uh, trick to stand up. Anyway, um, is, is there anything that you're enjoying at the moment? Um, yeah, I, I think um, I, I've. I've I find myself watching more and more YouTube these days just because of the sort right. of fitting it in around work and everything and, and, and yeah. family and looking after kids. But um, there's this fantastic YouTube channel called Trash Theory where there's a guy in the UK who writes about music and he's a sort of music journalist, but he does this amazing series called, he calls the New, uh, New British Canon, which is to sort right. of say outside of the UK and I guess we're a bit unique in Australia that we're very aware of music from the UK and the US but um, we're saying outside of the UK there's these amazing artists that maybe didn't get the recognition they should have and and he wants to talk about things that aren't Bowie the Beatles the Stones you know um, Led Zeppelin and 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 because I think he's a similar sort of similar sort of similar age he's really about you know talking about post-punk Britpop 
punk, you know, all those sorts of things. This is like mostly sort of like perfect channel for me in some ways. But then he does these exceptionally really well observed pieces around sort of the individual songs. So he does this fantastic um, sort of episode on Smells Like Teen Spirit. Um, okay. Yeah. He's, he's, What's yeah, this called again? It's called um, Trash Theory is the name of his channel. He's got like almost like half, a quarter of a million subscribers. He's, he's yeah, yeah, he gets like right. plays in the millions, um, which is great for him. Yeah, he's fantastic. It's like first time oh. I've ever gone, yeah, maybe I will get on the Patreon and support this person. This is great. <laughs> oh, yeah, right. Wow, that's great. Oh, that sounds yeah. amazing. That sounds right up my alley. I'm writing that one down as we speak. Um, and I, I won't keep you much longer, but uh, so is the what, what's next on the horizon? Do we know uh, if you're moving ahead with the continuing adventures? Wait, of yeah, I'll wait to see how, you know, it's a commercial books is a commercial thing so it's yeah. I think it'll be down to how the sales go and whether they feel there's enough appetite out there to do a, another thing so right now I'm working on the screenplay writing side of things still trying right. to break through there you know there's, there's been some options and meetings and you know you know what it's like I'm sure yeah. you know you meet with some execs and then it's, it's a long road but working on two, two screenplays at the moment so you know oh that's exciting that's great well we need people to buy this book because I want to read the next adventure um, like this is quite clearly all about me suddenly everyone buy this book because I want I want to read this story set in Berlin um, to, to, to let you go on in, in an ideal world where this story is adapted would you want to see this as a movie or as an HBO series oh no question an HBO series I mean yeah yeah, yeah definitely I mean or, or maybe I don't know a CW series for the teen market is probably not really what it is so HBO nah. um, <laughs> I think and, and with, with a soundtrack by Trent Reznor that'll be perfect um, you know yeah I mean, yeah, I, yeah, HBO is so stellar. I mean, obviously, they bring out so many excellent um, shows. I mean, obviously, as this podcast is a, started as a testament to, I mean, The Watchmen was just such an amazing, brilliant oh series. And it came out the same year as Chernobyl, which was just mind-blowingly excellent as well. I mean, and, and they're just, well, HBO, yeah, runs on the board, absolutely. And then all I have to do, would we worry about whether Paul Giamatti can do a French accent. Oh, so is that, so that or was going to be... maybe John Chichiro or something. Yeah, right. So that's interesting. So uh, I had my guy that I thought could play him. And uh, do you watch The Bureau on SBS? Uh, no. No, oh, but I've heard it's excellent. Oh, it's Matthew, Matthew Kasovitz, isn't it? I think it is. Well, that was my guy. That's oh, who I Kasovitz. was thinking. Nice. Yeah. I mean, I haven't seen him since he was younger, so I should go check it out, right? Um, you, he's got that... Um, remember when? Um, remember when Robert Downey Jr.? got a bit of age in his face or even even al pacino when remember he went off and did theater for a while and then he came back for sea of love and he just he looked older like he was older but it, it, he was still kind of incredibly handsome and beautiful but was a little bit more aged and had more experience and that's what uh Kasovitz has you oh, know God, he's still incredibly handsome and incredibly uh charismatic but i feel like you know he could look weary and still have that repressed yeah. passion. I think that's necessary, right? You need the vulnerability. It's 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 interesting, surprising to me because the um, publisher who read it had in her mind George Clooney, and I'm like, he's a bit too. You know, I need somebody who's a bit rumpled and and you could imagine, but also a bit vulnerable and yeah. But you know, I do love George, but um, he's still yeah. in control. You know, it's rare to yeah. see George Clooney play a character that's a little bit not on top of things. You know. Well, I haven't seen that he, thing he did for Netflix yet, so... Um. Well, he, 
Oh, uh, Midnight Sky. Yeah. yeah. It's not, I love no. Georgia. It's not, uh, you know. We've been, I think, once upon a time, as sci-fi fans, we would have been thrilled. But we've had some good sci-fi in the last 10 years. And Absolutely. it's like, you know, it's <laughs> when, when you see average sci-fi, it's like, yeah, but... There's all this good stuff that's been made, you know. But, but you know, uh, he can do... Um, I think his two best performances are probably... Or maybe his three best performances are uh, Syriana, yeah. Up in the Air, and The Descendants. But yeah. I, I kind of worry now that, you know, he's got so many other interests uh, and he doesn't act as much on a regular basis. So, uh, you know, it's like a muscle. You've got to keep using it, right? Yeah, exactly. He's too, he's too busy working with Nescafe to ensure everything's environmentally sorted by 2022 or whatever the new, new campaign. Yeah, yeah. No, I'm I'm all about Casavis. That, yeah, that's, well, I'll uh, check it out. I have to. I have to. It's been on the list. I really should watch it because it feels like something's right up my alley too. So, oh, you'll be wrapped. It'll be one of the, and it's very French, and everyone speaks very softly, and you'll be. <laughs> Oh, it's it's um it's realistic as well. Like it's not a shoot 'em up kind yeah. of. You know, when you watch a lot of these things, you go, "Are spies that exciting?" It's a lot of paperwork, etc. Which I know people would be listening to and think, "How's that thrilling?" But it is, <laughs> and his character is severely compromised, like severely compromised, and you love him for it. Yeah, I'll, I'll definitely have to check it out. It's a good suggestion, actually. I hadn't even thought within the kind of French actors. They'd, they'd, yeah. He wouldn't struggle to do the accent, for example. He'd be, just sort of <laughs> He'd be completely across it. And, you know, with, uh, uh, you know, the with series like My Brilliant Friend being made and, you know, let, let's get someone from Paris. Let's get him in there. <laughs> make it happen uh, Alex it's so good to see you and uh, congratulations on the novel it's, uh, it, it's a it's scorcher and I think it's your best yet and uh, uh, I really hope uh, it does well and we get to see more adventures of August Deshane oh thanks so much Justin um, and, and thanks thanks for having me on yeah I really no appreciate worries. it let's catch up again soon thanks mate Thank you to Alex for talking to me about his new novel. As I said earlier, there is a link over at the Big Squid Facebook page where you can easily hunt down the Paris Collaborator. It is really worth checking out and uh, it's always great to support local talent as well. And Alex is a super talent. Uh, I haven't talked much about what I've been working on outside of the podcast, but one project is coming to TV tomorrow night. The new Will Anderson, Jan Fran panel show, Question Everything, will be on air on the ABC at 8 30 p.m. So that will be the 18th of August, depending on when you're listening to this, and we'll run for about uh, eight weeks. Uh, On the show, our hosts and guests will dissect the news, in particular how misinformation spreads and how you can avoid it. It's all about finding the fake news and just working out, come on, why are we being so gullible? We can move past this. This is where this bullshit idea came from, and we're going to stomp all over it. It's a really smart show. It's really funny as well. The uh, the dress rehearsals we've been doing have been fantastic. And, uh, you know, I'm just working behind the scenes as a talent producer. So 
it's going to be really great. You're going to meet some new comedians who you might not be across their work before or even better, you know, like there'll be a couple of people that you have heard on this podcast. So that will be nice. You'll already have a leg up on some other people. But uh, it would be great if you watched it. We don't have enough of this kind of stuff, this really smart stuff in Australia. And so... You know, what would you expect from Will Anderson? What would you expect from Jan Fran and the people who produce Gruen? Uh, I would be wrapped for you to watch it. And please let me know what you think. It's been very hard to put together a show while you're in lockdown, but everyone's so amazing and uh, my little uh, contribution is something that I'm proud of and uh, I hope you enjoy it too. In the meantime, if you're enjoying this podcast, uh, if you wouldn't mind leaving a top review over at Apple Podcasts or recommending us to your like-minded friends, that would be really appreciated. Uh, Thanks for joining me today. It is always nice to have your company. Let's finish today with a quote from Edgar Allan Poe, who said, Were I called on to define very briefly the term art, I should call it the reproduction of what the senses perceive in nature through the veil of the soul. The mere imitation, however accurate, of what is in nature entitles no man to the sacred name of artist. Until then. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.